I recently read an article uh, from a producer uh, from the BBC show Have I Got News For You. I've never actually watched a full episode of the show, but I've seen clips of it and I know a little bit about what it, what it is. But what this producer was saying in this article was how much they have seen the guest appearance in the presenter's chair after a little bit of controversy they had to get rid of their regular presenter and they've had a guest appearance every, every time the show's on and how they've seen that their viewing figures have increased because of that. And he was going on to say how much value guest appearances have on television shows. If you are someone, either yourself, a kid of the 70s or the 90s, or your kids were kids of the 70s or 90s, you will be very familiar with the guest appearance theme. Because there was one show that really did crown it all, and that was The Muppet Show. Every week in The Muppet Show, you had your regular characters in that dusty old theatre. But every week, they would bring someone new in. And they've continued this in their movies as well especially in the most recent one that's been in the cinemas. Perhaps your kids have seen it or your grandkids or indeed you may admit to to watching it yourself. It's not a bad movie altogether. But in there you have Whoopi Goldberg appearing. In the earlier shows you had the likes of Elton John and Steve Martin and different other people appearing to, to try and draw figures in. It was all a gimmick. The only reason for doing it was to, to increase the viewing figures. So the producer of Have I Got News For You is absolutely right. Guest appearances are gimmicks. Their purpose is to increase viewing figures, either of the show that it happens to be or to give a once A-list celebrity who has moved to the B-list a little bit of prominence again. Guest appearances are gimmicks. We have read this morning about appearances. There's actually three appearances in the chapters or in the chapter section that we're going to look at this morning. There is no gimmick with Jesus Christ. In his appearances to Mary Magdalene, to his disciples, and then to the disciples again, but this time with Thomas in particular. There is no gimmick. This was not about increasing the support or the viewing figures of Jesus. Jesus came for one reason. He came to show what was truth, as John has been helping us through this gospel, to show the truth and to give hope for the future. So let's take a moment as, and pray as John introduces us. To Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we have been studying through this gospel, we thank you that it is good news, that it is not about a gimmick, but it is about the truth of the risen Savior. And thank you that Jesus is our risen Savior. Thank you that he was not about being for a particular time and place, but he is for all times and all places. So as we find ourselves here in Ballyhackamore in April 2013, make Jesus alive to us so that we can love him more and know him better. 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we read the two appearances of the disciples and then with Thomas. But back in verse 10, John starts telling us about a woman, Mary Magdalene. We have discovered Mary earlier on in our studies. Demons were cast out of her. She was a woman who had been transformed by the healing nature of Jesus. And his ability to cast out demons and restore her soul, recapture it for God. And here she is, coming to the tomb. We know this because this is what Resurrection Sunday was all about. She was there, she went and she told Peter and John that the body's gone. They went running. Well, now they've left to go back and tell the other disciples, but Mary is left on her own. She is standing there. She came to anoint the body. She didn't find it. Her report to the disciples were they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And here she is weeping in front of this tomb. Bruce Milne, one of the commentators, said that with our post-resurrection view, this is the most surreal of sights. Of all the times and places on earth to be shedding tears, this is not it. But Mary doesn't understand that, or at least yet. She looks again into the tomb, and there she sees, and John tells us, two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they ask Mary, why are you crying? It seems that whatever Mary's state is at this moment, it shields her from the fact that there are two angels right there in front of her. Because she just turns to them and says the same thing again. They have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. That's the only conversation she has because she turns around as she sees or or senses a figure behind her. She recognizes it as a man and presumes John tells us that we can only uh, suggest is what is reported later in Mary's thinking that this was the gardener. She turns around And she goes to accuse the gardener, if you know anything of where they have taken him, let me know and I will get the body. Jesus doesn't recognize this figure. John tells us that this figure is Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. See, something is different and has had to be different about Jesus. He is no longer the Jesus that we knew before the crucifixion. He is the resurrected Jesus. Now, what that means and what that looks like, I don't know. But there is something different about him in his resurrected form. And Mary doesn't recognize him. The only thing that Mary recognizes is her name in a voice that is familiar. Jesus calls out, Mary. And Mary turns And she says, my Lord. She recognizes that this teacher, who has been called the teacher of Israel, is the resurrected Lord. Whether she gets it all in that moment, we don't know. But she recognizes Jesus and she turns to him. 
The first appearance of Jesus is not only to a woman, which culturally would be, wouldn't be understood as a good thing, but it's to an individual. He calls her by name and she comes to him. The resurrection of Jesus has personal implications for you and for me. Jesus calls us to follow his way and we respond to his call. For Mary, her life changed forever. One moment she was weeping. She was at the tomb and she was weeping and she couldn't figure it out. She couldn't match up the difference in what Jesus had been saying for three years and the events that had just happened. She probably, as I've said, didn't even get the full picture in that moment. But she did recognize a resurrected Jesus who had transformed her fear and her sorrow into new life and hope. Take a moment and think about your journey with Jesus. Does he bring you new life and hope for each moment that you live? Or is Jesus just there? A name that's good to have around and good for us to know, and sometimes we pay lip service to him, but he's just there. The gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ needs to be transforming in our daily lives or it doesn't penetrate us at all. It transforms our attitudes of life. It changes our attitudes to society. It transforms our relationships with family and friends. It transforms our view of the idols of materialism, addictions, and social status. The reliable historical accounts tell us that Mary's life was changed, transformed, after having met the resurrected Jesus. The question that John poses to us in this short uh, part of his gospel is, is your life being transformed as you meet him? Is his transforming power at life, at work in your life? Because if it is, you will never be the same again. Before we move to the disciples, there's one thing to note in verse 17 of chapter 20. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Even before Jesus makes a great commission, even before he commissions his followers to go out into all the world, this personal implication of the resurrected gospel of Jesus Christ is to go. Mary Magdalene is to go and to be the first reporter, the first one to give testimony of the risen Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in his first act, commands that the Christian faith is a missional faith. We are to personally play our part in telling about the resurrected Jesus. And Mary does it. She goes at once and tells the disciples about the appearance of Jesus. And in this moment, we are taught a lesson about how we are to do it also. Mary goes happily. She is overfilled with joy because she has met her Lord. 
And she goes joyfully to tell the disciples this wonderful news. Because if the gospel of the resurrected Jesus is truly good news for you and for me, then like Mary, we will want to share it. If the gospel has transformed us, we will be excited about the resurrected Jesus Christ and the transforming power that he has had on our lives. And that will be the good news that we will want to tell those around us. It's not about sharing it in an offensive or rude way, or in such a way that we appear superior, or as if we have secret knowledge or life sorted out. Because we don't. The command is to simply go with the joy that you know in your heart and tell people about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Mary did it. The one who should have been shunned by society. Not only because of her past, but simply because she was a woman. But here she is the one who is bearing the first witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Let's move to the disciples in the passages then that we did read. The disciples are gathered in a room together, possibly the room where they only a few days earlier had had a meal with Jesus. John is very clear about how they're feeling. They're fearful. It's probably a little bit like Mary. They couldn't figure it out. The difference in what Jesus had been saying while he was alive and the events of the days that had just happened. Their fear was the fear of the Jews. What were they going to do in retaliation to these followers of Jesus? They got rid of the, the rebel as they saw him. So what were they going to do to the followers of that rebel? So we are told that the doors are bolted and locked. The room is probably filled with sorrow and genuine fear for their lives. And into the midst of this locked room comes Jesus. No door is opened. So in his resurrected body, Jesus comes and says, he came, John tells us, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. What a greeting for these fear-filled disciples. Peace be with you. The word that is used is Irene, which was a common greeting. Peace be with you was us saying, hello, how, how are you? But it was the meaning I think we miss sometimes by this simple word, peace. It doesn't mean this idea of everyone getting along. Irene means a deeper peace. It means whole well-being. Whenever Jesus was greeting his disciples, he was saying, Be well in your body, in your mind, and in your soul. Let nothing capture them except pure joy that is found in God. So Jesus wasn't just about calming their fears. Rather, he wanted the best for them as they would become a community of his people. And Jesus shows them his hands and his side. And John tells us that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And this is the reaction that we see again to the resurrected Jesus. Joy. Complete joy. Did the disciples understand everything? Probably not. But the thing that they did know was that they were overfilled with joy. And Jesus doesn't just leave them with this feel-good moment. He is, a, he is aware of what life is going to be like for these disciples. 
He's going to be aware that his followers are going to face persecution. They're going to face attacks on every side from the the evil one. So Jesus gives them a gift. He breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. A moment ago, we saw that faith in the resurrected Jesus had personal implications. There's a danger in sticking only with that line. We walk down a false theology that tells us that we have personal faith. In this act with his disciples, Jesus says this faith has personal implications, but it is not a personal faith. Faith is about community. The faith community, as we know it now, the church. The Spirit was not breathed out on each individual, but on the community that were gathered in that room. And that breathing out of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for one moment in one time. That is our hope. And that is our security that Jesus is with us, even though he is the ascended Lord. So we are to worship and follow Jesus together as a community of his people, because he is with us through his Spirit. And although John doesn't record a great commission as Matthew does, in verse 21, Jesus tells this new community of followers to keep doing what they've been doing. Like Mary, the community of Jesus are to go out and tell. They are to go and to tell about this resurrected Jesus. They are to point people to him because it is only through this resurrected Jesus that they can have life to the full. John started his gospel talking about life and it has been the message that has been running through it that Jesus is the true life. And now in resurrected form, Jesus is the true life for all. And what happens to the disciples? Like Mary, they are transformed. Whenever Passover is finished and, and whenever the Spirit comes on them on that mass gathering that we read at the start of Acts, they go out into the world. They go out as a community of people supported by a community and together as a community to share this truth about Jesus. Can we say the same thing about ourselves as a community of Jesus' followers? Are we concerned about doing things together that share this great news of Jesus that should overjoy our hearts? Or do we just want to order church and church life in a way that suits us. Do you recognize the expression of the disciples in being overjoyed when they saw Jesus? When they were gathered together, do you recognize or are you overjoyed when you come and you celebrate Jesus together here? Or perhaps this coming together is just something you do. Indeed, it may be even something that you endure because it's more tradition than it is an expression of joy in worshiping our Savior. Christ is more than we are experiencing at the moment. The only thing holding us back from being overjoyed are the limits that we place on ourselves. The limits that we place on our community, of how things must be done to order worship, 
There are no limits to Jesus Christ. There are no limits to his transforming power in the lives of us as individuals and the lives of us as a community and the lives of people in this nation. There are no limits to Jesus Christ. So we don't set limits. We cannot dare risk setting limits. The gospel message is not something that is woolly or good feeling. It is the power to transform lives. I can stand and say, I know transformation in my life because of the work of Jesus Christ in me. Do you know that? Do you know that your life has been transformed and that it should be transforming as you continue in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Remember, Jesus is present with us through the Holy Spirit. That's how we get through it. That's how we get through life. The final section and the passage that we read deals with Thomas. Thomas missed the first meeting of Jesus, the first meeting of the resurrected Jesus. And we don't know where he was, but he doesn't believe what he hears. How could he? From his perspective, generally speaking, dead people don't get up and walk. So why would he ever believe? Did he think that the disciples were just being deluded? Were they, were they just caught up in what they hoped for rather than reality? From what we know about Thomas, from the two records that we have in the gospel, he is someone who is loyal in John 11, verse 16. He's willing to go to Jerusalem and, and die with Jesus. And secondly, in John 14, verse 5, he is the spokesperson for those who have not grasped even the basic uh, concept of Jesus going away uh, to the Father. So we could sum up Thomas as a loyal but somewhat unimaginative person who will act only on what he is sure of. That's Thomas, your down-to-earth realist. So Thomas says that he will not believe unless he has hard evidence. And look at the time scale. This goes on for a week. So you have the disciples on one hand overjoyed that they have seen the risen Saviour. And you have Thomas on the other with arms folded. Nope, none of that. Nothing within seven days transforms Thomas until they are gathered one week later in the same room with that same locked door and Jesus in his resurrected body appears among them. Jesus goes to Thomas and says, look at my hands, look at my side. And Thomas says, after he has seen the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God. It actually seems that Thomas is the one who gets it first. So the most doubting of disciples is the one who is the most believing of disciples to express that he is, that Jesus is Thomas's Lord and God. And in effect, John has come full circle in his writing. In John 1, he describes Jesus as the one who is God. And now in chapter 20, John exclaims, as Thomas exclaims, that Jesus is Lord and God. 
There's an interesting thing that Jesus is setting in this incident. Jesus is saying that the message of truth, the message of gospel, is not dependent on supernatural acts. Thomas needed to see this. But Jesus says, Thomas, this is for you. But this is not how it's going to be. This is not going to be a show of gimmicks and supernatural activity. This is going to be a message, a gospel of truth. Thomas was so adamant in his unbelief that when he meets the resurrected Jesus, he immediately changes to believing what is true. Church history tells us that Thomas took the gospel eastwards, probably as far as India. He was persecuted for what he believed and his proclamation of the truth. Would someone who had so many doubts risk their life going across the lands to the east, to India, to be persecuted, to bring a message that they really didn't believe in? The greatest of doubters becomes the greatest of believers. The gospel was always going to be a gospel, a message of faith. And in the historical records of Jesus, and what we read about God's salvation plan, that's how it always has been. So we have had Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and Thomas. Each one filled with joy when they saw the resurrected Savior. Each one went and told others and pointed them to the only one who was good news, Jesus Christ. The appearances of Jesus that we read in John's Gospel are not Muppet Show gimmicks. The appearances of Jesus were not to increase the support level or to increase the viewing. These appearances were transforming moments in the lives of his followers. This transformation instilled in their hearts the greatest belief that Jesus was the Son of the living God and that everything that he had said and done was true. This was the final battle of truth. And Jesus wins. This is truth. The question that John poses to us this morning is, have you met the resurrected Jesus recently? If you have, you'll know you have. Because like these early followers of Jesus, you will have been transformed. Transformed into his likeness and encapsulated by his love. Meeting Jesus brings about transformation. Transformation in your life and a joy in your heart. And that joy is centered on truth. And that truth sets us free. Let's pray. Father, as we read the accounts of the resurrected Jesus appearing to his followers, we thank you for what we learn. We thank you that in Jesus coming to his friends, he shows them truth and they believe. Thank you that John tells us that many more things happened, but in the gospel that he gives account to, he only includes these. 
So we thank you that faith in Jesus has personal implications for each of us. Thank you that your plan has always been the outliving of faith in community. So we ask for your help. We ask that you will capture our hearts once again so that we will be overjoyed, overjoyed with Jesus. That we will know him as our saviour, that we will, we will be so taken by him, we will want to share him with those around us. Not with gimmicks, but with truth. So help us. Help us to do this as we entrust ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen.